Hello, hello, dear listeners of Once and Future Grinnell. That was, of course, the trumpet tune from King Arthur, Act 5 by Henry Purcell. It has become the introductory theme tune for this wonderful opportunity of a show uh, that I have here at Grinnell College. I am Ann Harris, I'm your host, and I'm also the president of Grinnell College. And each week we have been exploring one of the five strategic principles that are being um, discussed, articulated, conceptualized, and otherwise brought into our shared understanding here at Grinnell and within our community. So welcome, dear listeners. Welcome, dear friends of the college. Um, the broadcast is really meant for a, um, an expansive audience. And I spend usually about the first 15 minutes kind of introducing the concept and revising the concept and thinking about the concept of strategic planning in light of all sorts of different contemporary issues. And then we go into um, the second part of the show by discussing one of the strategic principles in great detail. So this week it will be the second part of our diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Um, And I will be um, joined by Dr. Shavala Rivera, who is the Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, um, as well as the Chief Diversity Officer and Senior Advisor to the President. Uh, And we had originally planned to have a representative from the Student Government Association, but I will tell you it is mid-SEMS, as they are called here, mid-semester work. Um, And of course, this is a very intense semester because we're actually doing 14 weeks of a semester in seven and a half week terms. So um, please turn all your thoughts and good wishes to our students who are producing a tremendous amount of knowledge um, in multiple different partnerships. So instead, um, it will be uh, Shavala and me in discussion, and I'm really looking forward to that. We will be um, discussing, like I said, this kind of the second part of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as I prepare to do so, I did want to revisit, um, again, the the audience reach, the title, kind of what it means to do strategic planning uh, in this day and age, I would say. So here we are in 2021, maybe emerging from a pandemic, we will have to see. Uh, Because of course, only time, time will tell when we have that feeling of after. Uh, we know that we know that we're crossing a very important threshold with the pandemic. So um, the t- the um, audience, of course, as I uh, as I say every time, um, this show is there to start to articulate ideas and to get feedback. And I really appreciated all the feedback that's been sent. Um, I will say, never forget, uh, president at grinnell.edu is the way that you can contact me. Leave your ideas. Um, your hopes, your aspirations for the college, that's very, very important as we kind of bring all these things together. And I have to say, I, I love bringing ideas forward from listeners into conversations on campus. Um, so in the spirit of deliberation um, and deliberative democracy, which is what, of course, we are working ourselves into um, through our knowledge and and sometimes more or less intentionally, but certainly as an institution of higher education, uh, that's very, very important. So I always like to pause on the title, Once and Future Grinnell. Um, And I think I feel that more this week than most weeks because there is this sense of a threshold moment. Um, And Once and Future has this sense of looking back Um, at the past and future, uh, looking, of course, to the future itself. We just passed the 1 million vaccination mark here in the state of Iowa. Uh, And that's a a number when you really think about, you know, all those individual people and all the way that they were vectors for the virus. And now they are no longer vectors for the virus. Um, It is an important moment um, for the experience of this state. Of course, we need to keep going um, and vaccinate more people all the time, but this is that threshold moment. This is what I mean by the threshold moment um, in terms of having the sense that things are moving, that things are changing. There are 3,123,899 people in the state of Iowa. I don't know if that's the latest census figure or not. Um, And so the idea that we're about halfway, sorry, halfway heavens, the way that we're about a third of the way there, um, 30% there, again, this is part of the why we got to keep going, uh, but also reaching an important milestone. 
um, and, and threshold. The concept of threshold, of once and future, of being in a position to look back and to look to the future is incredibly important um, to me because of a conceptualization is what I want to call it, a conceptualization of the pandemic by the author Arundhati Roy who has this magnificent article. I think you can find it just by Googling it. Her last name is Roy, R-O-Y. Um, the pandemic is a portal. The pandemic is a portal. And she wrote that um, f from, a, from a position of, of critique um, of India, the world's largest democracy. Um, and she did so by thinking about this, again, this metaphor of the portal, asking what do we bring over through the portal when we're in a pandemic. It was, I, I would say it was a powerful article because it wasn't, um, it was neither optimistic nor pessimistic nor fatalistic. It didn't try to characterize the experience. It really, for, for me and the many people with whom I spoke of it, um, it really encapsulated um, the, hmm, how do I, how do I want to put it? The changes that we didn't even know were coming in many ways that we couldn't fathom, but that we knew we were living in, in a historic period. So the idea of a portal of crossing over from one space into another, um, with of course, plenty of looking back and plenty of thinking about what are we leaving behind? What habits are we leaving behind? What safeties are we leaving behind? Um, what injustices can we leave behind? Um, when we think about community health and public health and what it means to be interrelated through a pandemic, what it means to hold each other's well-being um, in common. And that's very powerful to think about at Grinnell because we think about the common good a great deal. That's part of our mission is to, is to um, produce, create knowledge, share knowledge, um, and all of it going towards the common good. So this is very pertinent for diversity, equity, and inclusion. What do we leave behind? What practices? But what do we take with us? What histories um, do we bring with us? And I just, I can't wait to, to um, talk about all of this with Dr. Rivera. So the title, Once in Future Grinnell, I would say, especially today on this kind of milestone day uh, in terms of the pandemic, in terms of mid-SEMS um, for our students, a turning point in the semester, it, in the term, um, it just really feels um, <laughs> like a, a moment to pause on that title in terms of pausing in our practice, pausing in our work to look back and to look forward. And I very much hope that you all can be doing that um, in your own practice, in your own moment, um, wherever you are, Grinnellians and friends of Grinnell um, across the globe, which of course we are. Um, the title then, Looking Backwards and Forwards at the Same Time, um, is also related to um, a book about King Arthur of the Middle Ages. So there's a medieval connection. My training is in medieval art history, um, and it's very easy to find that connection um, in most everything that I look at. So The Once and Future Grinnell is based on a novel from the 1950s by T.W. White entitled The Once and Future King about the childhood of King Arthur. Um, itself, it is based on a book from the 15th century uh, called La Morte d'Arthur, which was the whole life cycle of King Arthur by Sir Mallory. So this idea of um, a kind of medieval basis to this, Arthur is a really interesting figure because he was um, a, a, an orphan, a boy, marginalized in society. Uh, and then because of this incredible moment, pulling a sword out of a stone that no one else had been able to pull the sword out of, was recognized as a king. And in fact, um, had this whole education under the tutelage of Merlin the wizard, much like our beloved faculty and staff in their teaching and advising and mentoring and researching with students. So on this particular day, when I'm really thinking about the title, Once in Future Grinnell and Once in Future King as a turning point or a crossing of a threshold, um, I also want to bring up this uh, particular medieval virtue, which is the virtue of prudence, um, which is no longer really seen as necessarily a virtue. Prudence, I think, is more relegated to the category of, um, of caution um, and things like that. But in the Middle Ages, prudence is able to look backwards and forwards. And uh, I'm not saying that we necessarily revalorize prudence as a value. I think a lot of things have happened um, to change that value. But in medieval 
artistic representations of prudence she is often a the face of a young woman looking to the future and of a very very old man looking to the past and i bring it up today because increasingly increasingly i think about the importance of history when we are dealing with um, addressing uh, issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think of looking back and looking forward and having the agility to kind of hold both perspectives in our thinking and in our work. Increasingly, I think a profound knowledge of American history and specifically the history of slavery and civil rights and the continuities of those histories. Um, history is anything but the past, right? History is very much in the present. Um, is is increasingly important to understanding our institutions, our systems, um, and the practices that, uh, the policies that we need to change because they are historical inheritances um, of a complex past. And this affects, profoundly affects um, black American experience. Um, it also, you, you've heard the terminology of BIPOC, um, which is black indigenous people of color um, as well, which broadens out the way that systems have marginalized and underrepresented multiple populations. Um, and it gets us to, to understand how history has created systems that have benefited some and not others. And so, you know, whether it's through, of course, there's always reading, especially uh, in a college setting, um, there's always doing the work. And I think about diversity, equity, and inclusion work as homework with the space between the two words, um, because it is the, the work of any home, the work of any institution is to do this kind of reading, this kind of research. And so we'll talk a little bit about this today, even the history of Grinnell College. In many ways, I feel like I'm at the beginning of my own journey um, of understanding, um, you know, there's there certain points that, of course, we know the college was founded um, with heavy, heavy commitment to abolitionism, um, to abolition, sorry by abolitionists. Um, but did abolitionists believe in racial equality? I think we can ask ourselves that question. Of course, we have the example um, of Abraham Lincoln, who did not uh, believe in racial equality, even though, of course, it had an abolitionist um, uh, platform um, and that led to emancipation. So those kinds of complexities, to my mind, are important. And not because, again, they are things of the past or, or ideas of the past, but because of their continuity into the present. Um, and I will tell you, as somebody who moved to the United States from Switzerland in 1978, um, my first introduction was to a, a past that had been severed from the present by the civil rights movement. In other words, slavery had been severed uh, from the present by the civil rights movement by Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and other figures. And of course, um, realizing the, the, that in fact, there is no severance from the past, um, that many, many practices continue within deep systems, that when we look at things like fair housing, uh, when we look at prison programs, when we look at many of the practices of contemporary society, they have deep, deep roots. So so again, uh, taking a, a special uh, introduction today, and I really like being able to introduce our work together um, in different ways each week. This week, really thinking about the title, Once and Future Grinnell, the ability to look back and to look forward, but thinking about history, not as the past, but as the way that it brings um, practices into higher relief in the present. So I am now joined by Dr. Shavala Rivera, um, whom I, I briefly introduced you to at the beginning of the hour as the Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, um, the Chief Diversity Officer, and the Special Advisor to the President. I can tell you that um, I, I am so I am so deeply glad to work in partnership with Shavala. Um, she and I have, boy, it was quite the summer to begin our work together. July of 2020 uh, was a momentous time, and it has not really stopped being momentous since then. Um, but her counsel, her expertise, her leadership, um, her outreach, her connection, um, and the way that she is moving many, many conversations that have been in place forward and adding to our conversation has just been tremendous. So, Dr. Rivera, a profound welcome to Once in Future Grinnell. Thank you, President Harris. I appreciate you welcoming me. It's it's been a pleasure working with you. So, <laughs> and it has it has been a very strange, but I think it's a great time, you know, to be alive. 
you know i think it there's situations going on but it's interesting to be here on the yes. planet during this time so yeah yes good. and and i believe that you and i have seen each other in person maybe two or three times since uh, july three times yeah that's it that's it and and yet we've worked together so so very closely so i i think a good deal about that and i've been talking a lot about thresholds and crossing over uh once and future and so forth so i want to dive right into our conversation um by a, a theme that can tie across a couple of different issues. One is representation and history and how an institution that is 175 years old, like Grinnell College, thinks of itself historically. What does change look like? What does history look like? And then maybe honing in on place and a predominantly white institution. And I think a good deal about the, the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion within an institution like higher education that was created for a very homogeneous group of people, future male, do, uh, future male teachers and preachers and ministers um, from the 19th century, and of course, how much that has changed. And so I'm eager to hear some of your thoughts about the way that, um, and, and your thoughts is really kind of a back and forth between the two of us. There's, there's, no, um, there's no set policy on this one. Um, but to think a little bit together about how a predominantly white institution can be aware of itself as such, and also position itself for change, for what are the next set of initials, right? And in American higher ed, we have HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, and we have PWIs, predominantly white institutions. There are also institutions um, uh, that um, prioritize Native American students and Latinx students as well. So I'd love to, to take a look at that landscape uh, with you a little bit about those identities in higher ed and, and kind of change do you see coming? Great question. I think first, um, what Grinnell and institutions like Grinnell, but let's talk about us right now, can do is to understand and acknowledge its past and founding, right? What you just talked about, um, the purpose of um, most PW, of PWI, um, liberal arts colleges and universities period across the board has been to establish and maintain white male supremacy, mm. right? Mm. And so that's something that I think we have to come to grips with, even saying the words out loud, white supremacy, and that yeah. it exists and that the foundations of um, of our learning institutions are based on that, um, whether intentional and throughout the years um, with less intentionality, right? But I think that that um, implicitness makes the racism and all of the other isms more insidious because it's hard to put your finger on it. Right. It's hard to name that thing. So I think that first we need to understand um, who we were and where we are right now so that we can move forward. Um, as a, a graduate of a women's college, uh, like yourself, <laughs> That's right. I, I am a proponent of spaces, right? I do mm -hmm. think that there is still a space for women's colleges. I think there's a space for um, for HBCUs and for Hispanic serving institutions and for native serving institutions, all of those institutions have spaces. What I would love to see happen is that we start sharing our knowledge between mm. all of those institutions. Mm. But for that to happen, we have to acknowledge um, that uh, racism and white supremacy is still existing and that that is one of the biggest barriers between these institutions coming together. There is this kind of, oh, well, we're better than you. Mm. We're better than, you know, an HBCU. We're better than a native serving institution. And we're not. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, that invalidation, the, which is a microaggression we talked about earlier today, you yeah. know, invalidating research and the academic um, experience and expertise of individuals of color and women is something that continues. So I hope 
that we begin to move towards um, working together and partnering. And I think that Grinnell could lead the way in that Mm -hmm. in so many ways. That's where I hope that we're. I just, I, you know, you're making me think about um, the system of uh, ratings, <laughs> yes. right? Of all the right. ratings and, and, how, and how they position and place and hierarchize and value in so many different ways. Um, and of course, any quick research of um, endowments and other other valuations um, of all these different institutions would I would really um, I think really underscore your your point I'm really intrigued by your phrase a proponent of spaces because I think about that both in terms of the higher ed landscape and also in terms of a college like ours um, and so starting externally first the idea of partnerships is really interesting because um, boy, <laughs> and I, right there, and I was, I was telling our dear listeners, like, I always come out with a ton of notes and a lot of ideas that I can't wait to take to, you know, back into our community. But I do, you know, so far, higher education has been really what I would call a kind of starry sky, all these little different points of light. You have some consortia, some in the Northeast, there's a consortium out there in the mid, uh, in the, in California, where they're really, you know, students can enroll in, in all the schools. But those partnerships are really rare. And so thinking about how the pandemic made us rethink partnerships, whether that's students moving between campuses or faculty moving between campuses, this could be interesting. And are those true partnerships, right? Because think about it. Are those agreements in which the predominantly white institution is seeing itself as helping out Mm, mm. um, institutions that... um, the global majority, which we call in America minorities, but Hispanic serving institution, native serving institutions and HBCUs, are they going into these so-called partnerships thinking we're helping them out? Mm. We're giving these students an opportunity to graduate from our school. Mm. Where's the reciprocity? Yeah. Are, are we seeing flow coming from both directions? Are we seeing you know, white students go to HBCU, um, HBCUs and um, Hispanic serving institutions and native serving institutions and coming out with degrees mm-hmm. or dual degrees. Are we seeing that or are we seeing the opposite? Are we seeing these students being funneled through the, uh, continue to be funneled through a system of white male supremacy, right? right? right. So are those partnerships? Right. I I don't think that's really a partnership. I think that that is um, more assimilation. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what I think that it is. Um, And it's stripping away of identity even more. Um, And while at the same time, we're patting ourselves on the back saying, oh, we're doing this. But that's not. I would like to see a reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you brought up assimilation because I think so much about um, how what you said earlier about racism and its many visibilities um and of course there's blatantly racist acts that are that are violent um and then there are you know today in fact you gave a brilliant presentation during our staff fireside chat about microaggressions that have a different kind of visibility of course impact all along um the way but i think about that to me is is probably the the thing that's the that i think about it i don't know if it's the most but i think on this issue of whether it's partnerships with institutions and what would a partnership look like versus a link, I love that. I love that that question um, that you've put forward. Um, but PWIs welcoming students into um, their midst, and and this is really thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And last week's uh, wonderful conversation with your leadership team, you know, really we started to look at some of these issues that we didn't talk about in terms of assimilation necessarily, but this idea of coming in and learning a curriculum um, and so forth. And I'm not t- talking specifically here at Grinnell, but I am curious to talk with you about where we recognize white supremacy within institutions of higher education. And and here, yes, let's look at Grinnell itself. Um, Where do we recognize it so that we can start to address it and change it? And I underscore your point that um, using the term white supremacy is still something that can stop people in their tracks as opposed to say it's a way of understanding a system. 
right? Supremacy meaning who is supreme, um, who, to whom is ser- who is served by by these systems. And so I think about the curriculum, but but what else do you think about when you think of a PWI's heaviest assimilation pressures? Well, first I'll go back, and yeah. um, it's it's not about who's supreme; it's about who is conquered, right? Ah, um, who, uh-huh, okay. right? Absolutely. Who has okay. conquered? Yeah. Who has conquered and destroyed, right? Yeah, yeah. So yes. that oh my you know, you get yes. to write the story, yeah. right? So yeah. that is the viewpoint that we're coming with. Yeah. Um, that um, you know, our laws and our education and economics is founded on. Um, and you asked, what was that? You just you you said you wanted to touch on. I'm sorry. thinking about assimilation and where the assimilation mm-hmm. pressures are in a Ooh, PWI. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in being a, well, validating, right? So mm. you're, let's start with students, right? In selecting a major, right? Um, there's, do you assimilate and select what someone thinks you are capable of? Oh, well, well, not to put down the social sciences because I am a social you scientist, social right? scientist. <laughs> but, oh, well, there's, there's a lot of um, BIPOC individuals in social sciences. Wouldn't you be more comfortable in social sciences mm. when this person is interested in STEM and they're talented in STEM, mm-hmm. right? In the natural sciences. So looking at things that way, um, uh, invalidating research on the part of mm-hmm. students and faculty members, right? So as faculty members are um, going through their process of evaluation, tenure, and promotion as they're meeting with their mentors. Are their mentors in subtle ways or not so subtle ways invalidating their experiences, their research, and also their sources, right? Their research journal sources. Are, we, are, are they sending messages that, no, you shouldn't be looking at, you know, this journal or that journal, you know, because it is um, specifically geared towards women or towards BIPOC, Mm. you know, giving those messages of invalidation. So that's ways in which um, people feel they have to assimilate, right? Imagine you're, you know, you were a junior faculty member at one time, you're a person that you're esteemed, you know, they're, they are a senior faculty member. They are where you want to be. And you hope that they are looking out for you. And again, in, in um, microaggressive behavior, a lot of times it is done in a way that it is um, the person feels that it's complimentary or caring. So this individual is saying, well, you know, I really want you to succeed at your first, you know, your first time up for tenure. So why don't you think about this topic instead of the one that you're mm-hmm. the one that you're studying, mm-hmm. right? So that's an invalidation, and this person can be very sincere and kind-hearted, but it is microaggressive nonetheless, and it can um, severely alter this person's career by changing oh. their um, research focus, yeah. right? Yeah. So. Those are ways that we're forced to assimilate the way we do our hair, right? How many women are, and even men, how many men are, you know, wearing locks or growing their natural hair out and wearing it curly? Um, are natural hairstyles accepted? Mm-hmm. Are they, you know, do we go into meetings and the first thing that someone says is a comment about our hair? Not even that it's pretty, but, oh, you changed your hair again, or what's that mm-hmm. about? You know, so those are ways that people can feel they have to assimilate. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. There's just a couple examples. Well, and I'm, and I'm so, I'm, I'm, you know, as we, as we prepare to re-enter our shared physical spaces, I'm actually really glad that you, that you brought up um, the issue of hair and the issue of, of being in each other's physical spaces and all the codes and all the messages that get sent that way. I've really wanted to put an emphasis on student residential experience as a site of belonging. And it's something that um, the Belonging and Persistence Committee, which met exactly one time in February of 2020, talked about um, it was spaces and identities. And I think there's a lot to be continued um, in that work. 
I'm also really, <clears throat> really glad that you brought up the academic experience and all those moments because I think of awareness and intervention, awareness and intervention, you know, do it again and again and again. And the Grinnell Science Project here at Grinnell 25 years ago, um, becoming aware of what was happening in scientific disciplines and then creating a series of interventions by actually creating a series of spaces for GSP students. Um, and when I had the honor of introducing, I think I welcomed um, GSP parents in the fall of 2019. And you could see there was a, there was a t-shirt, there was um, a really cool t-shirt. Um, there were, you know, there were gatherings, there were spaces, and there were these interventions that just cleared barriers of assimilation. I also think of, um, you know, of groups, uh, I remember reading up on, uh, just fascinated by the group Black Girls Code, for example, uh, really trying to, you know, break into that world of computer science, which is still very, very much uh, dominated by white men. And, and again, not just to be in that world, but to change it. That's the part I get excited about. And I'm, you know, I think we're seeing that. We see every new tenure line higher, arguably every term higher, is this opportunity to kind of rethink um, and to have the curriculum be changed and, and so on and so forth. So, um, Absolutely, and I think that yeah. happens also by traveling. So I had an opportunity to take a group of students a few years ago um, to Washington, D.C. We saw President Obama's second inauguration. Oh, wow. While we were there, we visited a military base and we got to go into their weapons lab. So we got special clearance to go into the weapons lab and our students were shocked. And I, I was pleasantly surprised and shocked. These weapons, which were top secret at the time, um, were designed the scientists designing those were black women wow you'll never hear their names because what they're doing they're doing for the government but this work is going on and for this group of bipoc students to walk around and touch these things and mm -hmm. handle them and speak with these people there's so much work that um you may never know the names of these individuals but i think that we do need to start traveling as faculty and students as well so that we do know their names and we do know their experiences because that's the only way this narrative that canon for any academic, you know, um, mm -hmm. any academic field um, is created by, and I'll use the term and I, I hear white, my white male colleagues, you know, we're tired of just hearing old white men, they wrote these books. Well, actually, you're talking 50 years ago. Right. But the people who are writing now and the people who are researching now are starting to look like you and me mm -hmm. and are starting to be browner and they're be and they're younger and they have voices. So I encourage faculty members to get into who's writing now, mm -hmm. who's doing research now so that you know those names. And it becomes easier to diversify your curriculum because what's going on now is very diverse. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I think it's a it's an enormous I, I yeah, it is exactly it's an and dear listeners, this was not rehearsed, but all my all, no, my, it wasn't. <laughs> all my introductory comments were so much about, you know, kind of know the history so you can change the future. I mean, it really is. It's an and, right? So, um, yes. yeah, so, so that it's, yes, understand um, the depth of American systems that began in slavery and, yes, had interventions in the civil rights movement, but that didn't erase history. Um, and and understand who's writing and and these are not there's not a continuum these are the complex layers that we need to learn i think to to live within um and so i this is so great that your emphasis is on the academic experience and i just think you know all the work that's happening in terms of i've heard syllabus inventory you know take a good look at your syllabus and i um i just finished a publication and i was like it's, it's been about mm, seven years long time writing but you know doing that work and saying who's there and this is within medieval art history which is a field that is right now you know really pushing and pulling um in a very very productive way um with a lot of work uh, you talk about uh you talk about assimilation tribe museums um <laughs> you know and right. well even in my own experience writing my dissertation right having to defend to my editor um to my mm. to the dean of the college why black is capitalized mm. right they kept 
they would give me back my edits and they would make the B lowercase. And so I had to write that into my definitions of terms. Like, this is why. And I love my chair, um, Dr. Kiger. And she backed me and she said, okay, great. Make, define that. And this is what it is. So I had to catch that so many times when they would bring it back to me that they would make the B lowercase. And then the question became, well, why is it right capitalized? And having to have that conversation Mm -hmm. and explain to that. And I could have backed down, right? I could have assimilated and I could have said, okay, well, I just want to, I just want to pass. I just want to get through my defense, but it was important. And I was adamant that no, the B is a capital B and that's what it is. (laughs) And this is why. So Yeah, yeah. awareness and, and intervention, again, that rhythm, because I think of the self-reflection of everyone in the room, you know, of, okay, let's pause, mm-hmm. let's let's talk about this capitalization and everything that it can mean, and then to do the intervention. And I, I mentioned museums coming out of the world of art history, and I think of the way that Leslie Wright, the, the director of the Grinnell Museum, has intervened in that long history of, I would say, really a a very assimilationist and white history of museums by changing practice, by having students involved, by having research, by having, you know, lots of interaction as the show comes together so that there's nothing inevitable about it. The way, right, oh, well, grammar dictates or syntax or whatever dictates that the B be small, you know, these kind of habits and practices. So it it really, that's a really interesting way to think about it. I I couldn't help but um, I was utterly taken by this um this moment that happened in in the news this week of i believe it was a a, it was like a local politician water commissioner something who just simply refused to recognize the title um, by which the you know a, a, a woman holding a doctorate wanted to be called it was just an incredible exchange and of course the pandemic records all these things right and then it got distributed and it got known I've experienced that if you talk, I mean, as a woman, period, you've probably experienced this too. As a person of color, that happens quite often. I have been in rooms and everyone else was introduced as doctor. And when they got to me, I was Shabala. Mm-hmm. Yes, that mm-hmm. has happened. And that is a common story that you will hear. Um, and so some people, and I, I think that academia needs to understand, and this is a part about recognizing white male supremacy. Um, I think it's important that we acknowledge titles for this reason, especially for marginalized individuals. Because if I was a white male, people would assume that I was a doctor just because of my position. It wouldn't even be a question. Mm -hmm. And so calling me Bob or Greg, that's no problem because I would be in air quotes graciously, right? Allowing you to do that and hey, we're together. But when you're talking about people from marginalized populations in the minds which have been trained and programmed under this white male patriarchy, I I am not a possibility mm. as doctor, mm. right? So when they close their eyes and they think of doctor, my face does not pop up, you know? So that's why it is important, is a teachable, one, it's respect, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's acknowledgement and respect, but it's also acknowledging that these groups have made these achievements and that we are a part of the academy. So please faculty members, don't think it's strange or or, uh, hyperbole when um, people of color or even women, um, white women or um, people from marginalized group insist um, on being called doctor whatever they are, or professor, whoever, because it is a teachable moment. It's retraining the brain. Every time we say our title, that is activism. Believe Mm. it or not, that is activism. That is crushing a system. Right. So, you know, outside of the room, I'm Shivala. Let's have fun. Yeah. But when I'm in that room and I'm in that space, Mm -hmm. I'm standing on the shoulders of generations who came before me. And... I'm doctor and I'm here because of them. And so that is why it's important. Not because I think I'm better than anybody else. It's because I'm honoring and I'm breaking down a system. It's anti-racist work. It's every day. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, I just, I'm so taken by your, um, your, your, uh, 
the way that you describe, you know, closing one's eyes and whom do you picture? And so the idea of titles and those habits, those practices, um, uh, really starting to change that mental picture of who is who is a doctor, who holds knowledge, who has authority, all these kinds of things. So it was a president, right? President Harris, let's close our eyes. Mm. And what does President Harris look like? Mm. If we didn't know what you look like, mm-hmm. when you close your eyes, is it a guy? Is a white male that you conjure up automatically in your right. brain? Fair. I would venture to say that for most people, it yeah. is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That's the that mental picture that we're trying to change, and and mental pictures, I think, are a good place um, to to think about because, of course, those are the implicit biases, you know, that that we yeah. carry and and so forth. So, I um, you use the word recognition, and of course, I love breaking down words and recognition being recognition, right? Like learning again in some ways. So in your work as Chief Diversity Officer, as Special Advisor to the President, as Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, you have a leadership team that has multiple constituencies and that really has this um, deeply interconnected across the institution um, understanding and practice of diversity and then equity in, in our practices and policies and inclusion in what we really, well, and all of these terms can be problematized. We know this, but, right. but I, was <laughs> thinking, okay. I was thinking about, um, about the, the term, an institution recognizing diversity and what that looks like and what that feels like, of course. Um, and we've talked about things like, you know, of course, address and being in each other's um, physical spaces. And, and I love this conversation about the, the curriculum. Um, I'm thinking about visible and invisible diversities, if we can call it that. And of course, part of your leadership team um, is uh the um, and I'm going to forget her title, but Autumn Wilkie, who uh, heads up the Office of Disability as well. Um, and I'm I'm just thinking. So that's an example, but there are multiple multiple um, identities that your leadership team um, works to valorize and to celebrate and to empower in the institution to change the institution. How in your in your thinking does an institution recognize diversity? What are those moments that we can look to and say, you keep doing that, Grinnell College. Let's keep doing that work. By doing things like this, by having mm. conversations like this is a first step. Mm. I also think that um, by diversifying their curric- our curriculum by saying, you know what? We've been this way for so long. Mm. Who do we want to be? Who are we going to be? And so as we start to... Um, to do that um, in the curriculum, we start to look at hiring. You know, you've talked about hiring cohorts and clusters. Let's start to do those things. Let's have an African diaspora studies. Let's do that. And people recognize that, guess what? Without Black studies and the Black student movement, all of these other study departments wouldn't exist. So that is the importance of why this does need to happen, why it needs to happen first. Um, Because we want to recognize, relearn, remember, honor the people who did this work and who are continuing to do this work. So those are ways that we can honor diversity. Um, Honor it in the way that we look at work, right? Mm -hmm. With flexibility, with, um, you know, some things that are going to be announced that we're going to be doing this summer. Um, Can't wait for that to come out. But those are ways that we are honoring diversity and that we can honor diversity. Um, It just means that we're recognizing differences in how we share space and power. Mm. Let's think about that. Let's think about who's in the room, who's not in the room, Mm -hmm. who's speaking, who's not speaking. And let's make sure that, um, and then who has opportunities. Let's look at that. And that's where we can go. So Grinnell, let's do more of that. Let's push ourselves to do more of that. So as we talk about um, harm or possible harm in the classroom, let's talk about that. You know, are we going to look at heart or are we going to look at um, a political stance, Mm -hmm. right? So those are how we need to define who, I think those are ways that we can define who we are and honor diversity and 
recognize diversity. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that relationship between Black student unions, Black studies, um, and disability studies, um, Latinx studies, critical race theory studies, you know, um, other studies that have also done this work of valorizing identity and so forth, just the, the relationship um, between them, whether it's about, yes, and I'll, and I'll stop there because I, I'm, I'm very interested in how we conceptualize um, of diversity work within that dynamic and within that relationship of, and I mentioned like student organizations, but of, of course academic um, efforts as well. And how how how, how that that um, how that work is coming together in in other articulations of that work. Anyway, I'm, I'm eager eager to learn. Well, thank you for opening this up. I would say um, start by looking at um, ABCC, the Association of Black Culture Centers. Right, mm-hmm. Dr. Fred Ward. Um, who was at Knox College actually founded this organization. And so he goes in, he wrote a wonderful book, goes into the history of the creation of um, of black student unions and um, black culture centers and how the civil rights movement fed all of these other, how it expanded, right? How it went outside of the black community and the black community joined with other communities um, and other communities were allies and borrowed tactics, right? To further their own um, agendas, which is great, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so you had in the 60s, black student unions taking over the the college president's office mm-hmm. and and having sit-ins my mom got to do things like mm-hmm. that right so they would they would walk into the president's office and sit down and they had list of demands and some of the things that they were demanding were um hiring of black faculty right mm-hmm. so many of the same demands yeah. that students are asking for now were the demands that our parents and grandparents were demanding in their day. But these movements, they pushed for culture centers, for black culture centers to be developed. And from that, then Chicano students started saying, yeah, right on brothers, let's, Mm -hmm. let's, let's, let's join together and let's have, let's have a, um, a Latinx student union. Let's have Chicano studies. And so the idea just started making a ripple effect. And the Asian students were like, yes, let's have Asian studies too, and women's studies and all these different um, groups and um, different um, philosophical thought coming and being highlighted, right? Coming to the forefront. So so the movement, these, all of these different movements started because of these in most cases were young black students and brown students sitting in and making list of demands and saying we want to know our history and we want you to know our history because it is american history Mm -hmm. and it is global history Mm -hmm. and so that's how you start seeing all of these other i'll put in air quotes studies Mm -hmm. come along and different groups come along um affinity groups come along so that's just a really brief brief history but um yeah there's lots of great information out there yeah and i i I think about you know the history of higher ed i mean so um ebony and ivy is a book that that i learned a great deal from that's not a recent book um and there's the hashtag um ebony in in the ivory um but that's that's i i really take your point and it makes me want to understand more about the development of student organizations of student spaces and of academic programs. And I, I will confess you, I have not thought of the interrelatedness of those three. Uh, of course, at Grinnell College, CBS, the, the Concerned Black Student Group, um, which indeed, uh, and I think we did a Grinnell Magazine story not too long ago, several years ago, but um, your point about you know the demands being the same over, over several generations, of course, uh, uh, creates more urgency, but also um, I think if why hasn't it worked? Why hasn't why hasn't the change happened? And of course, that's when we talk about changing systems, and that's why it's so interesting to me to think about 
um, the history of studies um, and student spaces and student orgs because um, then it's not extra in the curriculum. It's core in the curriculum. It's and embedded, right? It's, it's an, embedded. Yes. Yeah. And when you have, especially for people of color, which tend to be from um, more communal, um, more communal um, societies, right? Mm-hmm. So you have or intergenerationals mixing, right? In conversation, leading and developing together. So it makes sense that you would have black student unions um, talking about, um, you know, let's let's have black studies or African studies and also the black faculty and staff being on board and fighting from their direction too because they were getting together right. and having conversation for support right mm-hmm. or um, for cultural support but also intergenerational support right so that is how these things came about. You know, these students were learning, they're coming up through the NAACP, they're coming up through SNCC, and they're learning how to organize, and they're working with different generations of people, and so they're learning strategies together. So you know that, you know, both, you know, these plans are happening at the same time, but they're very much talking to each other. It wasn't just the students were off siloed and the faculty and staff were siloed. No, they were coming together in the evenings Mm -hmm. or early in the mornings to break bread together, to converge, to support each other, but also to say, okay, we're going to push on our end. You're going to push on your end and this is how we're going to do it. So it was a multi-pronged air quotes assault right Right. (laughs) that's how you get that's how you make it happen and i would love to see some of that and and if any of our students are listening from sga like (laughs) you know where i'm getting this from it's like hello this is i was born listening to this stuff and so sitting around you know um the older people who who develop these strategies and tactics and saying well yeah you know this is how you get this done so absolutely young people fight Fight, fight, fight. With. Don't forget your at yes, yeah. don't forget your comrades in arms who are in a different generation, maybe, um, but who wow. are in this fight with you. And wow. you need we need each other so that we can make this change institutional and sustainable. I mean, intergenerational change that is so powerful. We're we're going to be having conversations about intergenerational equity, um, right? With, of course, with our <laughs> wonderful board of trustees. Um, what what um, recourse or um, what recourse or, uh, or or practices do you see for let's say um, students with disabilities or LGBTQ students in terms of this intergenerational change momentum that you're talking about? Do you see the same intergenerational opportunities or do you see different approaches for um, other marginalized identities in, in higher education? I see some I see some similarities, of course, right? You know, I think it's always wise to um, seek advice from people who have experience, right, in the area, you know, why refight a fight that's already been fought for you, you know, so get that information. But I also think that the communication and how different groups um, get together and work together is also culturally related mm-hmm. as well. So um, I think in bigger cities where there is a large LBGTQIA plus population, mm-hmm. you'll see more ge- intergenerational yeah. mixing and mingling and helping. Like, you know, if you've ever seen Prides in San Francisco, you'll have seven-year-olds and you'll have 70-year-olds mm-hmm. all together in the same place, right? Um, because those opportunities are there in a bigger place. So I would say in smaller communities, definitely building um, building community and finding safety and bravery is going to be important for um, for both of these student groups, um, for students with disabilities as well. Um, I think let's create affinity groups. If they don't already exist on campus, what, um, how do you want to be supported? Mm-hmm. Let's think about that together. And if you want to start a support group, an affinity group, so you can just talk and 
blow off steam or just to have someone to who understands is in this with you then let's work on like come to our office adam who is the associate um the associate chief diversity officer for disability services she will be awesome and and me too as a person with disabilities right um being able to mentor and and work through my own you know my my own figuring out how i accommodate with my um with my physical challenges that i have mm -hmm. so um wow. it's definitely possible and but i think the way that people connect is definitely cultural mm -hmm. and because i haven't um mm -hmm. really been able to mix and mingle too much in grinnell because of um because of covid i haven't learned how those groups do it i know that you're yeah, doing yeah. it i know that there's conversations yeah. and texting but i can't wait to yeah. get in and um learn and be a part of the mingle. <laughs> uh, the mingle, capital T, the capital Johnny. M. I love that, actually. I totally love that. And, and of course, the you know, takeover. I love the mingle, but I, I think a lot, too, about administration, right? And and I'm using that term intentionally because very often in higher ed, there's this, this sense of the administration. Where does the administration right. stop and end? And, and where is, you know, the administration, how, how far, quote, down? And that's an interesting term because it tends to be hierarchical where there's one president and, you know, we haven't yet really had colleges with three presidents all at once. I come. I grew up in Switzerland, which has seven presidents all at once. Just saying, it can happen. But, <laughs> but I'm I'm sitting here thinking, you know, the 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 administration is both. Um, it's not part of these generations necessarily. Necessarily, it can be depending on identity, and it, and in some ways, it it frames all this work, or it un, or it supports all this work. I, you're just pushing me to really think about in the mingle, in the intergenerational work. Um, where does the administration sit as support, as um, recognition, right? I mean, so much of, you know, of, of work with disability, with, with different religious identities is about visibility right. and recognition and support. And so, but it can't just be that. It's got to be more than that. Administration has to do mm -hmm. more than that. And so yeah. you've left me really pushing myself to think, where is administration in the mingle um and and i have some answers but i want to keep right. you know, coming up because it's not just about yeah. recognition and support there's got to be more yeah i think and also let's hear let's sit listen and hear that takes humility mm. to be able to hear that guess what we're not doing everything perfectly oh yeah and that's and we should be prepared to hear that yes of course we want to hear the things we do right like please tell us the things we do right <laughs> so we can keep doing that right <laughs> Yeah. But the things yeah. that were that we're missing the mark on, we need to know those areas too, and we need to be willing to hear that. Mm -hmm. And let's be open to rethinking. Let's reimagine. Let's let's be open. And then, is everyone mingling? Yeah. Ah, right? there it is. Okay. I think let's challenge. Like, okay. um, President Harris, like let's challenge the administration to say, how often are you mingling mm -hmm. with? Mm -hmm with um staff with yeah. faculty with students how often are you out there in the mix are you yeah. walking around campus oh i can't wait yes. are are you <laughs> sitting at tables Absolutely. are you visible are you leaving the ivory tower yes yeah and do you really know what's yeah. going on yeah right so that is going how can you recognize if you're not cognizant yeah so it's we need to go out but also receive so yeah. yes students please come to our offices yeah. yes please come in i um spoke with sga yesterday come come to my office get on my calendar let's have regular let's have regular meetings so we can talk i love to encourage you know i was encouraged when i was younger i want to be that for someone else to um encourage and and, and get these students fired up because you know they're they're going to work me out of a job one day and i and i love it like who's going to be the next who's next and that's i want to meet that person right. because yeah. you know to be able to say or think that oh that's a little bit of influence in there legacy. i got in there yeah. right legacy. absolutely <laughs> no what are the initials after pwi what is next and so forth and this is what happens every week the hour ends incredibly quickly I learned a phrase, I believe it was from you. I know that we've talked about it, but I, I, am, I really 
thank you for the challenge of where are you in the mingle and taking that as a president and thinking about being out there and, and how to prioritize time, how to prioritize, you know, those, those moments of, and, and the phrase was listen and believe, listen and believe people. If people are sharing experiences, listen and believe. And that's for all of us, um, to each other. Um, Wow. I wish we could talk so much. Well, we are. We'll probably have five meetings together tomorrow. So <laughs> thank you, dear listeners of Ones in Future Grinnell. Um, I bid you a very, very fond evening. And I thank you so much for joining us. See you next week. Take care.